but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We are fresh off of one of, I think, the most exciting Grand Slam tournaments in my lifetime. In your whole lifetime? Yeah, I, I, it was a very pleasing fortnight to me. <laughs> you know, I, I've said before that I'm allergic to enthusiasm. You know it's got to be good if even I think it is possibly a watershed U.S. Open. One that will go down in the history books. And one that gave us a host of exciting matches. And the storylines. Just the storylines. They're overflowing. So wait. It doesn't mean that I always... <laughs> those were not the storylines that I wanted. Or that I asked for. I don't recognize this person sitting I know, beside me. I know. Spitting these unrecognizable words in my ear. This is another person I lived with the last two weeks. No, but now that there's uh, about 35 minutes distance from the U.S. Open, mm -hmm. I'm starting to see it in perspective. Uh, you see I do have to say I was buoyed a bit by Daniel's win. Okay. That accounts for part of it. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't the women's semis that I was looking for, but it's it's hard to look back and not appreciate what we saw. It was the women's semis that I was looking for <laughs> once those semifinals were set. Where, where do we even start with this? I feel like had Novak Djokovic achieved history, we would have led the show with a discussion on the men's draw. But given that the men were so wildly overshadowed by the woman this fortnight, let's start with Emma Raducanu and Leila Annie Fernandez. Yeah, Leila came into this tournament having been touted for a few years, but still ranked, uh, I think, 74. Emma Raducanu had never won a WTA Tour match, had that nice little run at Wimbledon, her first major tournament, and was ranked 150 in the world. And that's the final we got. If the draw gods had thought differently, this could easily have been a first-round match. Instead, what happened was Leila Fernandez blazed her way through this draw, taking out three top five seeds. Then the number 16 seed, Angelique Kerber, who is a former champion, a former number one, and a three-time Grand Slam champion. So her road to the final, which she capped with another rousing three-set win against Sabalenka in the semifinals, that run was just jaw-dropping. It was. It, you know, even though Layla did not win the tournament, it's it's hard to argue that she did not have the more impressive run or, or an equally impressive performance throughout the fortnight. Yes, Emma won 10 matches. Three of them were qualifying, seven in the main draw. But Layla taking out a, a two-time U.S. Open champion in Osaka, Angelique Kerber, number five Svitolina, number two Sabalenka, and that match... That was the one where I said, 
You know, I think the Cinderella story is over here. I think Arena's power is going to be far too much for Layla. And look what happened. Well, you and the commentators after she went down, what, 4-1 in that first set. You're like, how is she going to do this? She's just being overpowered. Mm-hmm. Even before that match started, the commentariat was harping on the fact that Layla plays so close to the baseline and there's no way that she'd be able to withstand Arena's power. She was maybe a little bit shell-shocked at the start of that sure. semifinal, but she adjusted quickly. And the redirecting, the crouching, the Radvanska-esque backhands. I mean, this this stuff that we saw Layla do, the dexterity in her game, this is what we're going to be seeing for a long time on the WTA Tour. Mm-hmm. And the, the medal with two Ts... Not mm-hmm. a D. You know, the the poise. This is where it, it would help to pronounce If Americans T's. pronounce things right, yeah. Her metal. Her metal. Yes. Her composure, that may be youthful exuberance, a lack of fear. It may just be something innate for her. But for her to gut out these matches against such formidable opponents, it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to say that she wasn't also a big winner at this tournament. Huge you know? winner. But the winner was Emma Raducanu. <laughs> yes, the Who, actual winner. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot of folks talk about how her path, we just kind of touched on it, was so much less impressive than Layla's. It was it was not nearly as hard as Layla's path to the final. And you hear folks say, well, it's not really that impressive because... Eh, well, but, but there's, this, I know there's a big butt coming. There's a big butt. But this is where I come down on, on the fence. I'm on the side of the fence where she won 10 matches, all of them in straight sets, to win this title. Nobody has ever done that before. So when you do something that nobody has ever done before, it kind of withstands all criticism. For me. <laughs> if it was so easy, how come no one else had done exactly. it before? Exactly. In the history of the game. Uh, yeah. And it's a very, very unusual situation, right? Coming in so low ranked. We've never seen this happen before. But you can only beat the people who are in front of you. Well, Kim was unseated. Yes, but she was a wild card, yes. right? Not a qualifier. And she was a proven champion. Yes. She had won a major before, was number one. This is, as you sort of take the long view and take another look at it, it's really kind of unbelievable. And what makes it more unbelievable is when you trust and believe what you saw on that tennis court the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Because the results happened fine. Layla won all those matches, but it's the way she won those matches. The way she stared down Kerber in that third set and just did the business. It's the way in that final... Emma Raducanu would not budge. Like Whitney sang, my mama said I was not built to break. And <laughs> There is a Whitney lyric for anything. You can anything, conjure one up. Always. <laughs> and, you know, Layla threw the proverbial kitchen sink at Emma in that match. And she had an answer. Even when she, she was put on the back foot when she was faced with tough situations where first-time finalists would normally have a hiccup. 
She might have bent, but she didn't break. <laughs> but she did break when she was way down in the second set. And it almost felt like, oh, here she comes. Where no matter how far down Layla is, 5-1, five, 5-2. Five, when two, you say she she did break, you're talking about Layla. Yes. Okay. <laughs> she broke serve. Uh, it looked like, you know, you could easily see this swinging again to another third set, which had kind of become Layla's brand during this tournament. But Raducanu just had, a, I mean, they really both had incredible uh, nerve management in the final. Because surely that there's no reason to that say they had nerves. Well, there's no reason to say they're not nervous. Because yes, of course they okay. are nervous. Okay. But they both handled it very well. Mm-hmm. That I take that point. That's fair. Mm-hmm. But again, from what we saw, this was not normal. That's that's right. the thing about this tournament on the women's side, and specifically with these two young women, is that nothing about it was normal. And maybe the opportunity here is to break free for us to break ourselves free of the tropes and the cliches and the the way we view the sport on a regular basis Mm -hmm. i think we can push back a little about this not being normal because while it is extreme it's almost the rule rather than the exception over the past few years since probably ostapenko in 2017 We've had a few fairly shocking teenage champions or young first-time slam champions on the WTA. This isn't unheard of. At the time, Ostapenko's win over Simona Halep, her comeback win, was very surprising, Mm -hmm. right? Then we got, of course, we got Naomi, who was kind of poised for a breakthrough and was slightly older. But there's Andreescu, there's Sviantek. These things have been happening. There have been teenage champions, what we've typically seen is having one upstart against an aging champion or somebody with a lot more experience. What I was referring to is coming off the back of that discussion about nerves. Mm. The kids just are built differently, it seems, these days on the WTA Tour. Like what, what we project onto them as to what should happen in these moments, we have, we have to move past that. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen historically and what we often see on the men's side is when you're up against multiple slam champions, it would be normal not to win your first Mm -hmm. slam final. Instead, what we got was these two young up-and-comers facing against each other in the final after doing what they've done and not stumbling at the final hurdle, bringing their best or close to their best and showing out on this big stage. Mm -hmm. It was such a spectacle and banner event for women's tennis. Even though it was a straight sets match, it was high quality tennis. And it seemed, I mean, at least from where we were sitting, that there was a lot of mainstream media engagement for the final, which was surprising because there were no superstars in the final. Obviously, it was a big deal here in Canada because Layla's from here. Emma was literally born in Canada, Mm -hmm. in Toronto. (laughs) Right, but you had, what, TV4 moving mountains to get that broadcast and the rights to broadcast Mm -hmm. that final because Emma is British. Right. You have, I will not even come close to putting the Canadian market in the same breath as the British market, the UK market, Mm -hmm. but having Emma being British in this final helped in that regard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to see these same players excel at every slam, right? Like, this is less of a changing of an era 
as it is the continuation of an era. Mm-hmm. This was just like on overdrive, right? The the results were more incredulous than normal, but still we're seeing surprise finalists, surprise winners who just sort of bring it when it comes to finals day. We saw it with Krejcikova, Sviantec last year. Since Serena Williams ended her dominant period, that's what we've been seeing. And I think a lot of folks have expected that transition period to end. And at this point, it may not actually be a transition period. This may be the status quo. Folks expected one or two people to pop up, form a cute little rivalry, and then dominate the WTA Tour into the next decade. That's what people have expected. Right. Instead, what we've gotten is this period of parity. And it's something we've talked about a lot on the show. Folks mock it all the time. They say it's not really depth. It's just top players being piss poor, not being able to handle pressure, though WTA is a wasteland, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Because you don't have one or two people dominating. And, and you know, Sabalenka should have won that match. Or she should have played a lot better than she did. She played some absolutely brainless tennis in a lot of that semifinal. There's some merit to that, right? There's also merit to the fact that Layla won these matches. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, Sakari and Bencic did not bring their best games. No, but, you know, again, like, Barty was taken out by Rogers. Radicanu beat Rogers easily. She beat Bencic, the number 11, the gold medalist at the Olympics, who had been playing this kind of video game tennis for a lot of the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. The commentators were all in on Belinda. But tends to shy away from being part of the talk when it comes down to the nitty-gritty parts Apparently. of these tournaments. Sakari played possibly the match of her life against Karolina Pliskova. And just, again, when you exert that much emotional and physical energy reach the semifinal of the slam she just simply did not have it against emma and that's not emma's fault because the pressure you exert on your opponent probably has a lot to do with that as well Mm -hmm. okay so we've got a little bit sidetracked here Mm. my point with talking about parity was when we talk about parity and believe in the parity on the wta this is somewhat of a progression of that it's parity on steroids yes i that's, I wasn't going to say steroids because of the, you know, loaded connotation in sports, but okay, yes. But you, you get the picture. And now what we have is a continuance of Grand Slam tournaments on the women's side where five or six top contenders could be out and it won't make a difference because there are 52 other women who could win. <laughs> right. And five more who you wouldn't even conceive of winning. Mm-hmm. And I mean, people were pre- pretty excited about this finals matchup. Like, it didn't right. matter that the top 10 was out, the top 20 was out. <laughs> like, if you had said to folks before the tournament, well, hey, guess what? This tournament, Serena's going to be out, Venus is going to be out. Not really a challenger at this point, Venus, but a big name. Kennen, all these other players are going to be out. And at the end, you're going to have a final with Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez. It would have been a tough sell. In terms of (laughs) (laughs) getting people to believe that this was actually a stellar two weeks of tennis, right? Mm -hmm. And so the lesson here is to just focus on the actual tennis being played. I think too often we get caught up in seeds, in names, in rankings, 
and don't actually pay attention to what's happening on court. Because if you watch the last two weeks, the tennis on display on the women's side was just absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, these names are not going to be for everybody, right? If I, I would be lying if I said the final was highly anticipated for me. It definitely wasn't. It wasn't. It simply wasn't. That doesn't mean I'm not happy for both women who were in the final. My favorite match of the tournament was in the first week. It was still Pliskova and Isimova. And that's fine. But these two young women, they're going to make a lot of money. They're going to make a lot of money for tennis and its sponsors. They're going to be in the talk a lot. Right. And we, again, we have no idea how they will play in the future if they will win multiple slams or not. And right now it doesn't really matter. Like who cares about predicting those things? We're just kind of along for the ride. Right. So if we get into the middle of next year and Raducanu has struggled to win back-to-back matches, remember, it's not the end of the world. Right. Players these days have a lot of time. Even though careers are ephemeral, they're longer than they used to be. (laughs) But what I do wish for her is that Not just to generalize, but to be more specific, the British media can have a little more self-awareness than they normally do with how they treat Emma Raducanu. Mm -hmm. I mean, they won't, but they should. This is the first major final between two women of Asian descent, which is a big deal. Both biracial women. Layla is from Montreal, Quebec. One of her parents is Filipino, her mom. Her dad is Ecuadorian. And Emma... Her last name is Romanian, of course, and her other parent is Chinese. We also learned she has an older sister whose name is Jodeci. Uh, Layla. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I need to know. <laughs> Was she named after the R&B group Jodeci? The very influential R&B group. And she's now a dentist, the older sister. Yeah. Good for Jodeci. Dr. Jodeci Fernandez. And Emma Raducanu did a video message in Mandarin for the U.S. Open Weibo account. And uh, apparently she's quite good at Mandarin. Obviously, I I don't know how to evaluate it, but people were saying, wow, she speaks really well. Layla is trilingual. Right. Like Spanish, the, French, English. The markets that these two young women can open up for women's tennis. Yeah. You know, the tennis saw that Weibo message and we're like, we are going to be so rich. And Emma too, but you know. Tennis By especially. tennis, do you mean what specifically? Um, the sponsors, the people who run the sport, the USTA, the LTA. I mean, she's rocketed to like 1.5 million followers on Instagram already. <laughs> right. like the, the coin is coming. Yes. A note here, or maybe to spare a thought, for the veterans who could not get the job done. Because, naturally, this was a huge opportunity for them. <laughs> And at the yes. quarterfinal stage, you have these matchups. Raducanu versus Bencic. Bencic flailed away on the wayside. Sakari, she beats Pliskova. I said that this could have been Pliskova's big moment. Yes. And the thing is, we have seen draws open up before for Carolina, and she has not taken advantage. I tweeted earlier in the week that I was coming out as a Pliskova supporter, after years of being a very open hater, which I think you can agree I was a hater. Oh, yes. Up until like a few weeks ago, probably. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely controversial. Somebody even responded by saying, why hate? It doesn't have to be hate. 
not grasping the difference between being I mean, a hater. I, I didn't mean that I literally and somebody hated who hates her. somebody. Like, I don't know her. How, is, how am I going to hate her? This is one of the pitfalls of social media. That you, lady has been wilding, by the way. Yes. I think she's a plant. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to say who it is. But I will just say, like, I don't honestly care that much. Like, I, I know some people wanted me to be, like, eaten up by it. I don't actually care. I was just saying, like, I was supporting Plichkova to win. No, the way you wrote that tweet made it seem like you were a stan. No, I'm not a stan. But that's how it came across. Yes. But, you know, people desperately wanted to win over Somebody wrote back to you and said, like, they've known disappointment as a fatherless child. And this is even more disappointing. Yeah, and he knows who he is. (laughs) I also today tweeted that the WTA outsold at the U.S. Open. And somebody responded, how much? No, what are the numbers? Oh, what are the numbers? I mean, outsold is a very vague verb. Like, it's not like they sell records in tennis. Um, Was it gold, platinum, diamond? How many units were shipped? I'm not saying this to make fun of that person. I'm saying it to illuminate one of the pitfalls of social media where if you engage in colloquialisms... Or I guess the or stan language, the hip language of the day, <laughs> oh the day, that it may not always translate to everybody. Yeah, I will say we'll get to this a bit later, but I was surprised throughout the two weeks that the the Grand Slam was not the centerpiece of coverage. And this is not to rub salt in any wounds. This is to say I'm surprised it it wasn't a bigger deal on the broadcast networks. It didn't seem that, I guess maybe we're following the wrong people, but it just felt like what was happening on the women's draw was making more noise. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I think a lot of people felt that Novak's win was inevitable. Right. But the women's tennis, the actual tennis, was undeniable. Yeah, the quality was better. The quality, yes, it was better, but it was just so thrilling these matches. Mm. You could literally name 20 matches that were outstanding in this tournament. Yes. The other person who really let one go in this tournament was Fidelina. Losing that third set tiebreak to yeah. Layla. Mm-hmm. And again, she's a veteran, but has she been at this stage many, many times? Only over the past few years has Fidelina broken through to the second week of slams. Mm-hmm. And then poor Krejcikova, I think, was just blindsided by Muguruza's insult at the net. Sabalenka overpowered her. Sabalenka, though. We, we, have, to, we have to say something about Man, this. I, do, I honestly did feel bad for her because the camera was showing her in the back, like after her mm. loss. And I felt it was so invasive. We've um, said many times over the years that that needs to stop. Yeah. She's obviously going to be caught up about it to lose to this little girl, basically. And I think if you're Arena, you probably know all of the things that you could have done that you didn't do. And for a a large part of the match, it was just get more of your ground strokes in the court. Mm -hmm. You know, you can overpower her, but you also just have to get balls in. Right, but her attitude after the loss was good. She said, said (laughs) on Instagram that, you know, I may not have gotten where I wanted to be, but I'm at a better place than I was last year. And I know I'm yes. going to win eventually. Like, that is the absolute mindset that you need to have. It's still progress for her. She's a champion doubles player. 
So who, I who guess struggled I'm mightily yeah. at net. Which is why I'm surprised she doesn't have more of a a plan B because she is such a good doubles player. I th- I mean I think it will come. Like there's very little doubt. Maybe not the plan B, but the win. Right, but this is <laughs> this is what we see all the time. Players who have the physical gifts don't necessarily have the touch gifts and the the dexterity in their mm. game. Layla is more diminutive. And so has to rely on timing more so than raw power. Right. She can redirect. She can withstand the power and sort of feed it back to you. She can take the ball early. She's able to be more lithe on her feet, which mm-hmm. folks don't always give enough credit to or pay enough attention to as being a real asset, a real weapon in one's arsenal. Yeah, because it's not only speed. It's getting to the ball and being in the correct position, Mm -hmm. right? It's not... (laughs) Layla does this thing where she gets into the position, but not by running like Roadrunner across the court, where you can absolutely see her speeding on court, Mm. but she still manages to be in that position. A lot of it is instinctual as well. Congrats to Emma Raducanu, the 2021 US Open champion. Will be ranked number 23 in the world. Started the tournament ranked, what, 150? Mm-hmm. She'll be making her top 100 debut, her top 30 debut. <laughs> She's still in search, though, of her first WTA main draw win. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I do have a feeling that she'll get one eventually. <laughs> I believe in her. And congrats as well to Layla Fernandez, because that was a star turn, even in mm-hmm. defeat. Her runner-up speech to the New York crowd, many have tried and many have not come in the vicinity of that speech that she gave. Yeah, she has made some fans for life because of how she snatched the mic back and wanted to say something because the the final did occur on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it was, it was just a very kind, generous statement that she didn't have to make. I that felt, she wasn't even born right, for, ni- for 9-11. Right, but it came across so genuine mm-hmm. in her moment of deep anguish. Yeah. I want to say a bit here about my own fandom of Leila Fernandez because it's only recent. It's only watching her run this tournament. There's this thing that happens when Canadians do well in tennis whereby folks we encounter, beat at work or online, expect us to be over the moon. Expect us to be Canadian fans by default or fans of Canadians by default. When in fact, I lived half my life in another country, mm. as did you, more so, <laughs> more, more than, than half my life. Yep. And so my my natural patriotic inclinations, my instinctual, or I guess I should say my learned, mm-hmm. my deeply ingrained uh, patriotic instincts are still Jamaican, right? I, I'm a Canadian citizen, but I just don't stand Canadian people just because they are. And I tried I tried for the last two years With to get Bianca into it. No, no, well, oh. we've long moved past that. But I've tried. I really wanted to get on the Layla bandwagon from the, the ground floor, from the basement, the parking lot. But the bouncing of the ball, man, like it just drove me nuts. Like <laughs> she'd start with the tennis racket, boom, 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 boom. And then she'd start with her hand, boom, 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 boom. And I was like, this cannot be the start of our journey together. <laughs> and... <laughs> Thankfully, she has evicted those ticks mm-hmm. from her repertoire. Yes, yes. Those habits can be super hard to break. 
and uh, it, it goes to show just how irrational fandom is. Yeah. Because yeah. clearly Layla is an awesome kid. I mean, I think we're kind of post-national here, right? Mm. I'm from the U.S., but uh, I mean, as an American, a lot of us are like sort of trying to move um, past that, out, outlive our shame of being American. So like we're not outwardly patriotic. So I really mostly just stand people that I like. It usually doesn't have to do with country. Mm-hmm. But sure, I take that. I don't wear that always. Right. Especially not at the Olympics. When oh, it comes no. To and track I mean, and field. I've adopted like Jamaican fandom because of you, mm-hmm. you know. So that's a wrap on the women's tournament. We kind of expected to be recording this episode with the men's match still going on. I thought it was going to be longer. Uh, but um, what, we, what we found out in that match, or maybe what we were reminded of six years after the fact, is that it's very, very difficult to win the Grand Slam. It is very hard. There's a reason that no man has won it since 1969, that no woman has won it since 1988. What? Stephanie Graf was on one in 1988 as a teenager. I have, I think at this point, the only way to do it is as a teenager because you don't have the same fear. Yeah. Right? That's like, one of the lessons from the last couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. That when you are put in these positions where you've never been there before... Like Emma said, I don't have any pressure because who expected me to be here? What happens? What would have happened if Emma lost the U.S. Open final? Nothing. She still would have been rich. An incredibly successful tournament either way, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe not as rich, but still would have been rich. Right. This, I mean, Novak Djokovic has spent so much of the past decade appearing more than human, appearing impervious to pressure. That it was easy to think that this incredible achievement was inevitable. So much so that folks, including yourself, thought that he was gifting sets on purpose to create pressure for himself. Let's talk about this. This was a a very interesting tournament for him. He lost the first set in five consecutive matches. From the third round against Nishikori through Brooksby, Berrettini, Zverev in Medvedev and the final was the one that flipped the script it was easy to to look at the first set tonight and say well he's just warming up you know he'll probably break early on and it'll be smooth sailing and he 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 got broken right away yes in the very first game in the second set here he had love 40 on Medvedev serves and I was like oh here we go like this is Same script, it's going to be a match different cast. however a different script different cast <laughs> because medvedev ended up winning that game he was not the one today <laughs> no uh, well i guess he was the one but it it did honestly feel like novak was going to make his way through this tournament uh kind of accepting the loss of sets and knowing that his fitness is so superior and his ability to manage a five set match is so much greater than his peers, that he could win this tournament. Uh, it doesn't matter how many sets he loses as long as he wins three mm-hmm. in a match. You commented earlier about how surprised you were that the narrative from this tournament wasn't Novak going for the Grand Slam. And okay. that it ended up being a lot of the excitement on the woman's side. How I read that is that it had to do with people being kind of bored 
mm-hmm. by Djokovic's winning. And when we were researching a Steffi Graf's run, a lot of the writing at the time was boredom at her achievements as well. When she got to the U.S. Open, she had not won the gold medal yet. Like, the Olympics were after the U.S. Open that year. But this was uh, when that famous phrase was coined, runs the gamut from A to B, apathy to boredom. Mm -hmm. People were literally bored at this incredible achievement. And to be fair, people were a little bored by Novak's excellence. By his superiority, right, throughout this year. And uh, not just this year, for a very long time. <laughs> right. But I don't know, it, it had this air of, well, there's no, like, there's no way he's not going to do it. And uh, we said at the beginning of this tournament, and a lot of people did, that if, I mean, it's still unlikely, but if anyone were to upend this narrative, it would probably be Daniel, because mentally, he just seems there. Like, he wouldn't mind spoiling the party. Except in Australia this year. Right. But the the difference here between that is, this is not Australia. And this is the US Open where Novak has only won it three times. Yes, it's a hard court and it's it's an event that you'd have expected him to win more, but it hasn't been the case. Mm -hmm. And So my point in saying that is that I think Medvedev's chances were always going to be better here than in Australia. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Novak's won, what, nine in Australia? His his confidence level there is just in the stratosphere. But when it appeared this court was playing fast, I'm like, well, that's that's good for Novak. You know, he loves a fast court. But Medvedev, despite what Alexander Zverev thinks, has been the solid number two player in the world on hard courts for quite a while now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wish for this man to have a better grip on reality, Mm -hmm. to be less deluded in life going forward, because that was just absurd from him. Uh, Yes. This from the man who still has yet to beat a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. But that stat is misleading, Jonathan. It's, it's misleading. Did you know that? Despite He's him... also lost to a lot of, like, top 30, top 40 <laughs> players. Like, it's not only top 10 players. I guess that's why it's misleading. I mean, this is he somebody... He should have beaten Felix at Wimbledon, for example. This is somebody who's been as high as top three since 2017. This is somebody who's won 17 ATP titles, who's now played 25 Grand Slam main draws. And still, despite all the big talk, all the delusion, has yet to win against a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. Now, this episode is most definitely not about him. So let's go back to Novak and Daniil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the title of the episode is Hatched and Snatched. Right. Medvedev hatched a while ago. But he, I mean, he certainly snatched this title, the fourth leg of the Grand Slam, right away from Novak. We've we've always talked on this show about hatching and snatching. Well, maybe in the last couple of years. It's hashtag hatching and snatching. Yes, you invented this coinage. Uh, thank this you. Coinage. I, I take it. I take all the credit. And Layla and Emma hatched and snatched at this tournament yeah. in unforeseen ways. I mean, Emma, Unprecedented Emma ways. essentially like came out of the tennis womb. Uh, only right? recently. She's like, I don't need to incubate for nine months. <laughs> who who does that? That's plebes. 
Right, that's why her run was so unusual. You know, because we've seen teen winners before and Celis and Becker and yeah. Austin, but none of them... I mean, all of those players were more heralded, more accomplished before doing this. But back to Medvedev. Yes. He definitely snatched. He snatched many follicles, if not the whole wig today. <laughs> right. The thing is, Medvedev's run, he made it through his matches easier, more easily. The only set he lost was to the GOAT, Botik von Zanschlup. And Novak spent a lot more time on court. And Five and a half hours more. Yeah. And... It's easy to overlook Novak's age because he is so incredibly fit and well-conditioned. But I think coming into the final, there was a combination of fatigue and just incredible pressure. Because even though he's achieved otherworldly things, anybody would feel pressure in this moment. He Mm -hmm. wanted it so badly and he displayed it so openly how badly he wanted it. He told us after the semifinal that he was going to leave everything he had physically mentally he was going to play like it was the last match of his career yeah and against medvedev today he just didn't have it and that happens Uh, if you're a serena and novak fan i feel for you today because you have you have felt this twice now well that is like such a sly way of letting people know that you are not a fan of novak djokovic (laughs) right but i'm i'm not gonna uh, slate him today. Is mm-hmm. that the British word? Sledge? Slate? Cricket sledge? In, in, what are they in Australia is sledging. Sledge. That's it. Because I I honestly do feel... I'm not going to say that I'm sad that he lost, but I do feel for him. Because I know, I know what it's like as a fan to have gone through it with Serena. Mm-hmm. She was... I mean, she was going for her fifth slam in a row. The pressure on her in her home country was immense. And her approach was to downplay it as much as possible. Novak took a different tack and instead sort of leaned into it and said, I'm ready. Like, I want this so badly. And it's just a lot. It's damn near impossible. Mm -hmm. But his track record had damn near everybody, even having watched the entire match, had people still believing that he could win this match even when Daniel was serving for it at 5-1. Oh my god. Or what, 5-2? Five 5-2. Five two. Novak is down, he's down two breaks and two sets, and he changes his shirt, and we're like, oh, here he comes. Oh, He won that one th- point. I guess you thought. <laughs> he won that one point, and here he comes. And that's the, the nature of his, his kind of mystique, is that you could actually foresee that happening. He came back down two sets to love in the Roland Garros final. This year, he's done it twice, right. coming back from two sets down in a Grand Slam. That is the Djokovic mystique, the Djokovic resume, that this was still possible. It's... And not just possible, but entirely believable. If if we had said to somebody, well, you know, Djokovic is going to get to the U.S. Open final. He's going to be down two sets, double break. He's going to be saving match point. And then eventually winning 6-1 in the fifth. Yeah, that checks out. That makes sense. I mean, sense. wasn't Zverev up two sets and a break last year and team still beat him? Right, but that's somebody who hasn't beat yes. a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. Yeah. Oh, I said, right. Can you say that again? No, I'm That's somebody <laughs> I'm who hasn't beaten a top 10 player at a Grand Slam who is delusional, oh, who I... has delusions of his own grandeur. Mm-hmm. 
IBM still had Novak 51-49, deep, deep into the third set as the <laughs> likeliest winner. And honestly, it felt the same way. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so when Medvedev goes to serve for the match for the first time, you hear boos, you hear screaming while he's trying to serve. He's it wasn't got, cute. It he's was got match point. And he's waiting like almost a minute to serve because the crowd will not yeah. shut up. So obviously it threw him off. Double fault. Uh, then what happens Threw next? away that game. Double fault. Mm-hmm. Gets broken and you're like... Like, uh-oh. This fucking yep. crowd. We're going to a force this, Like, this crowd is trash. It was, it was pretty bad. But he goes to the changeover. He's chewing on something. Like, looks like a camel over there. I don't know what he was eating. And he just seems super dialed in right and so before the second time that daniel served for the match novak went to his chair and literally sobbed he novak wept i mean he seemed to know that it was over and he you know he probably knew something that we didn't had it gone to a fourth or fifth set maybe he didn't have it maybe he didn't he was fatigued it was possibly a combination this is all speculation Mm -hmm. But he had just gotten one of the loudest ovations ever. Maybe not from any crowd, but definitely from this crowd in his career. Mm -hmm. After he broke the first time in that fifth set while Medvedev was serving for it. And then after he held easily. So like that probably had something to do with it. Yes. That combined with grasping, coming to terms with the opportunity lost. You know, it's an Mm -hmm. emotional moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, through the match... Medvedev, uh, he played well, but was he transcendent? Like, was he forced to play out of his mind? No. No, but he, he played extremely well. He did. And his serving, that's where this match was won for him. Yes. On serve. It was not It was not even the ace count. It was the excellent spot serving. It wasn't even the serve speed that did it to him. Novak was having real difficulty reading where the serves were going. Which is surprising because he is one of the greatest returners ever mm-hmm. in the sport. And like you said, when he got into that familiar position to us, when somebody's won that first set against Djokovic in this tournament, he comes roaring back immediately. And when mm-hmm. Medvedev was able to save that love for it to start the second set, that was a different look and feel for everybody involved at this tournament. Right. Novak is going to test you with long points. And he tried to do that throughout the match. And even in high-pressure moments, he's going to test Daniel with just keeping the ball in play. Like, I'm going to force you to either win this point or make an error. And more often than not, Daniel was able to withstand that incredible pressure somehow. He won the large majority of rallies over nine shots. Medvedev did. Which shows you how not on his game Novak was. The fact that... Daniel got away with a lot of these obvious windmill mm. drop shots that landed way too high. And Novak put away a few, but he also made terrible errors on a few of them as well. Novak's play at net was atrocious. Let's be yeah, fair. Yeah, so this is like, why There I'm were so many easy balls that he missed. Or maybe balls that he's made look easy in the past. We definitely saw things from Novak today that we have scarcely seen in the last five years mm-hmm. which is why i'm saying that daniel played very very well but if he were pushed harder you can see how it could have gone differently 
It's not like he was unbeatable today. Right. Well, but I mean, he wasn't beaten, but... The only case of unbeatable I can recall against Djokovic in recent memory is Nadal at the 2020 French Open. Right. Like Nadal did not look like he was losing that match at all that day. Mm. So yes, Medvedev did look that the tides could still turn in this match at any moment, but he never blinked. But they didn't, is the point. Yeah. Is that when he had an opportunity to choke, he did not. Correct. <laughs> right. And I know like people like to make fun of his game because it appears kind of junky in his strokes, especially his forehand, is just crazy looking. But the game is not junky. Like, it may look that way, but the consistent power and depth on his ground strokes is just really, like, picks away at you. And that's what you saw consistently in the longer rallies, is consistent depth. Even when the shots look like he's just sort of puttering them over the net. They're a lot harder than they appear. Mm. It, it became a tougher ask for Djokovic when Daniil showed up in this final with that many fewer hours on court under his belt, looking like he could play best of 10. Well, I guess it would be like best of 11 or something, you know? <laughs> yes, it has to be an odd number. <laughs> yeah. I, I said it to you all week that if all tournament, if somebody's going to beat Djokovic, they have to do it in straight sets. I told you that, right? Yeah, it becomes considerably harder mm. if you give him like an, a whiff of hope. John McEnroe was literally reading out his acknowledgments, the credits, his dedication in the middle of the third set. He was like, I don't think we're going to be out here for much longer. So I'd like to thank and then went through all that. Dude, what? I mean, if this means you're retiring, good. Continue. Please Listen, read out the credits. By his standards, this was a minor faux pas. It was just, I'm sure he will be added to a list. The men's quarterfinals, Djokovic beat Bertini again for the third straight slam. Beat him at the French, beat him at Wimbledon, and beat him again at the US Open. Like so many did, Bertini won the first set, and then it was just curtains. Zverev beat first-time quarterfinalist Lloyd Harris. Felix Auger-Aliassime made his second slam quarterfinal, his first slam semifinal, mm -hmm. beat Carlos Alcaraz, who came in on a, a huge wave of momentum, and retired shockingly. It, watching the match, it was like, what? what? Yeah, I mean, he clearly was depleted in that match. The serve speeds weren't there. Mm -hmm. But he didn't look visibly hampered physically, right? And so when somebody retires like that in the early stages of the second set without it, being a case of, oh, well, he's limping. Oh, he clearly has one leg hanging out of the socket, like the shoulder's broken. You know, it's like, huh? Right. So it felt abrupt. And uh, Chris Fowler tweeted something really ungenerous and got roasted for it about how essentially like in a slam semi, you, yeah, you know, shit you push through it. You have to suffer for enjoyment, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And look at the players who have pushed themselves through injuries. And what has happened to them? So Carlos shared with everybody what actually happened. There, he had a fibrillar, fibrillar tear. Is that how you say that? I, I was not even going to attempt to describe what was going on with Mr. Alcaraz. He had so. a tear, and he had something else in his hip. Like they were real injuries. Imagine if he had gone through that entire match and made that shit worse. Mm -hmm. Is that what we expect from our players? Like. 
Do we expect Bianca to totally fuck up her knee in the WTA finals and be out for a year? No. Like, stop that shit. The only player to take a set off of a Medvedev of this tournament, Botek van der Schanschlup. I feel like that was closer. Okay. I trust you'll edit this part to make it sound better. <laughs> yes. In the semifinals, Felix just did not have an answer for Daniel. No. I... And, I mean, nobody expected Felix, Felix to win this tournament. There was just something still missing physically from his game. There's a talent, but to get to this last hurdle and cross it on the men's side, you need to have a certain level of physicality that I don't think Felix is there yet. Right. The lower th- half is looking thicker. He's still super young. I think in this day and age, you have to be able to rally with Medvedev and Djokovic over four or five hours. That's you, it, right? Like You, you have can't... to play a 53-shot rally, <laughs> win it, and then still lose. Right. Like, you cannot be a serve bot and win a Grand Slam. Let's talk about Bam Bam Sam. Yeah. Sam Stozer won her eighth Grand Slam title. Her first was way back in the mid-2000s in doubles. Obviously, she won her lone singles Grand Slam title here in 2011. Do you remember when she was more of a double specialist than a singles contender? Yeah. That was the case in her career for a while, and then she emerged as a top singles player, winning the U.S. Open, making another Slam final. And now at the tail end of her career, she doesn't know if she's going to be playing into next year. She gets to finish her four-month sojourn away from Australia with a U.S. Open title. Mm -hmm. A Cincinnati title and following up with a U.S. Open title. 37 years old with her partner Zhang Shuai, who herself has just won her second Grand Slam title. They beat Makoko, the home country favorites, probably the sentimental favorites for a lot of folks, Katie McNally and Coco Goff. Beat them in three sets. All the sets were 6-3. Venus's doubles partner, Coco Goff. (laughs) Yes, will always be Venus's partner. Goff and McNally had a really impressive run. They beat the number one seeds Shea and Mertens in the quarterfinals. In the semis, uh, Luisa Stefani and Gabriela Dabrowski had to retire. Stefani injured herself, and it was a real shame to win that way because that team had had such a great summer. Stefani and Dabrowski. They... Winning Montreal and runners-up in San Jose and Cincinnati. I didn't see it. I was at work, but you said Coco had a bit of a... A faux pas at well, the end of that match? I mean, she uh, she did smash her racket right after they lost championship point as they were going up to the net, which was a little surprising, but she clearly wanted to win. She said in the uh, the post-match, the in the trophy presentation, that Sam's was the first autograph she ever got in tennis, which was really sweet. In men's doubles? Joe Salisbury. He doubles in both men's doubles and the mixed doubles. He was the double runner-up at Wimbledon in both draws. You know, he won a slam at Roland Garros with Desiree Krawczyk. They won again in mixed doubles here at the U.S. Open. On the men's side, Salisbury and his partner Rajiv Ram beat Murray and Suarez in the final. In mixed, he won with his Wimbledon final opponent, his vanquisher, Desiree Krawczyk. They beat Mexican Juliana Almos and Salvador and Marcelo Arevalo in straight sets. 
I feel like this little segment is going to be very difficult for folks to follow. I feel like you were oh. very all over the place. Okay. Uh, what should be very clear is that Krawczyk won three legs of the Grand Slam this year, starting with Roland Garros. So she did not win Australia, is what you're she saying. She did not. And that is in mixed doubles. Yes. We'll finish this episode with some of um, a couple of the other stories from the Fortnite that we did not get to f- touch on on our last episode. The Zverev story. Well, we did touch on this. Yeah. But it, it got a bit more play this week. It developed as he got into the semifinals. And we saw some non-tennis outlets pick up the story. The Washington Post wrote about it. Then we saw an article in Rolling Stone that had quotes from the very first tennis player to speak openly about what's going on in Milos Raonic. Yeah, Milos has been in kind of a truth-telling phase recently. He's been very outspoken, and he said that the ATP should be embarrassed for how they've handled this. Now, a few people have pointed out the irony in Milos saying this because earlier in the year he had defended his agent, who was essentially run out of his previous agency after an investigation into sexual harassment claims. Mm-hmm. And but Milos, Milos said, kept him on. Milos said, you know, cancel culture is out of control. So he was he was very dismissive of criticisms of Amit Nauer, his agent. At the same time... Multiple things can be true. Right. <laughs> you can be wrong about one thing and right about another. Milos is right that the ATP could have handled this much, much better than they have. And it's unusual to see an active player say that. We also had Andy Roddick step in it. I had to read this two or three times because I was like, stupidly, I was thrown by this. So Mm. Andy is tweeting about Zverev and his performance or whatever. Somebody responds, you know, about the allegations. And Andy's response is, it'd be better for police to investigate any domestic assault case. It would make things a lot more straightforward if formal charges were to be filed. The behavior described is disgusting. An accusation has been made in the press, but not in a legal way as I understand it. Now, this is all very November 2020. Mm-hmm. Like, you've been on Tennis Channel. You've been on Tennis Twitter this entire time. How is this still your position? As somebody who we assume to be an ally. But you've also been alive for 40 years. Yes. Right. Like, it, it's not just a tennis thing. The The op-ed that you referenced from the Washington Post was written by two legal experts in domestic violence. And they very plainly and very clearly uh, addressed some of the counter-arguments or some of the troll arguments that you'll get a lot of times when you talk about allegations of domestic violence. And one of the most common is, well, why didn't the survivor go to the police? That makes me cast doubt on the the accusations. And at this point, you know, they explained several of the, the very valid reasons why that doesn't happen. But at this point, I got to look at you. And if if you are hinging on this, why didn't she go to the police? That makes me not believe her. You are not engaging in this issue seriously. You've made the decision that I'm not going to engage with this issue on a very serious level. Because if you need to know... You can find out. You can Google it. Why don't 
abuse survivors go to the police. Google that. Also, you are a professional athlete who runs in the circles of other professional athletes, who follows other professional sports. You are not, as an American former professional athlete, unaware of similar cases that have happened in the NBA and the NFL. Like, you'd have to have extreme blinders on to not be aware of that. And so how do you not look within your own house on the tour that you spent much of your adult life on and place some blame there? Like, the whole thing was so disappointing. Because Andy has really, in his post-tennis career, has... Uh, I don't want to say rehabbed his image because he wasn't like a villain or anything, but I think he's... uh, He was kind of a brat. Right. But he's set himself apart from a lot of the American white tennis establishment because a lot of tennis Twitter has kind of embraced him. You know, they've sort of identified him as non-problematic or less problematic than many of the others. And so it is inevitable that you make a misstep like this. Like, this isn't a cancellation, right? This is just holding someone accountable for kind of a crappy opinion. He deleted it. It also goes to show that even your most well-meaning liberal allies, their footsteps are just around the corner. They're always coming, Mm. right? So credit to him for deleting it, I guess. Uh, The thing that I always go back to is... You know, for the people who say, well, why hasn't she gone to the police? Why she hasn't gone through the courts? Like, if you have that much faith in the legal system, good for you, I guess. Mm. I mean, like, that's great for you. It's just, it's not me. And it's not a lot of people. Not when statistics are so widely available on why women don't go forward to the police. And the barriers facing women once yeah. they do go to the police or any any survivor of abuse and then the systemic barriers culturally and socially that make their process that much more impossible including this type of shit right but not limited to on a lighter note we were going to talk about this on the previous episode we didn't get around to it but wanted to touch on uh mid-match coaching Mm-hmm. Because it is not a thing at Grand Slams. It, it was never sanctioned. You know, the the WTA did that experiment with mid-match coaching on their own tour. It's never been attempted at the Slams. You know, I... Famously, I, one player was penalized. Uh, yes. Three years ago at a Grand Slam. Yeah. Uh, Serena Williams, clearly. And then we've seen, you know... it. The coach who was responsible for that incident <laughs> has been involved in further penalties for his players, namely Stefanos Tsitsipas. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and I mean Stefanos's dad as well. I've gone on the record many times. I am biased in all coaching, well, in all discussions of anything. Uh, we are biased. Mm-hmm. We have opinions. I don't like coaching. I don't like mid-match coaching. I would prefer if the coaches sat on another continent, to be totally honest. Okay, but the rule is there's no coaching. So Correct. why are the coaches there? What, that's the simple fix. Why are right? they in the stadium? I mean, that's they can they can say, yeah, they can pump their fists and stuff like that. But any sort of signal, anything is... Put, put them be behind a trouble. two-way mirror. Create a two-way mirror <laughs> for coaches. Right. So a lot of people feel that the rule as it exists is draconian. And the evidence is that it's not effective. Mm-hmm. But just because people break the rule doesn't mean the rule is a bad thing. 
in my opinion. The enforcement is terrible. Maybe the enforcement is impossible because umpires have so many things to pay attention to. Sure. But what we're left with is kind of an impossible situation then because, like you said, the the umpires can't enforce it uniformly. They can't enforce it fairly Mm -hmm. to the point where one player will be penalized in a crucial moment and another person will be granted leniency. Right, because not only do umpires not always notice these things, they also react to noticing differently, differently, right? So Carlos Ramos, in that 2018 final, gave Serena a code violation. And we're not going to rehash this. We've rehashed it many times. Other umpires in other situations may have decided to give a warning, Mm -hmm. right? So we know the rules are not always the rules. We knew that, but like if you needed more evidence of the rules are not always the uh, rules, this is a great example. But what we have here now is a situation where the rule is the rule, which is always a rule, is being broken wantonly. Up, down, left, right, inside out, you turn me around. <laughs> what are we doing here? We had an incident where Muguruza was playing Krejcikova, and, I mean, Conchita Martinez might as well have had a blowhorn. And the camera right. caught her, and then the camera cut across. They were like, I don't want none of that it's smoke. It's like, we're not even touching that. We are not touching that. <laughs> but you see it all the time. And that's just what you see on TV. If you're in the stadium, you see it. All you have to do is keep your eye on the coach's box. Once you've located the coach, you will see it. Oh, my God. Especially if you're in smaller stadiums. Coaching is constant. It's not only hand signals. It is full-on conversations right we were in cincinnati a few years ago where sloan was just walking to the back of the court and literally having it was like a coffee clutch dialoguing (laughs) dialoguing with come out yes and sly both of them were there like what are y'all talking about and i mean plishkova made a misstep in one of her post-match on-court interviews and she was, you know, she was clearly mad at her box at a certain point. I forgot who the interviewer was. It may have been Renee. Oh, it, I think it was Renee Stubbs. And Pliskova said, like, they weren't giving her the correct advice. And I was like, oh, oh, can't say that. <laughs> They're not supposed to give you advice, girl. And I think maybe she, it was a translation error. Maybe the, the right kind of encouragement. Regardless, we need more clarity on the situation. We need more decisiveness. We need to not have this have tennis looks so amateurish because there is enough enough going on that does that already Mm -hmm. and i mean plenty of fans don't care about coaching and that's fine i'm just of a different opinion like i don't i don't like so either allow it or don't right make a decision and make it enforceable because we're gonna have it applied unevenly and that's what's untenable Mm. During the first week of the U.S. Open, Racket Magazine released a video uh, of a kind of a panel discussion on mental health. Players Lounge, I think that's what it's it's called. called The Players Lounge, featuring Naomi Osaka, Nick Kyrgios, Billie Jean King, Marty Fish, and Naomi's agent, Stu. I don't know how to say his last name, Mm. so I'm just going to say Stu. Stu. I mean, Uh, he shouldn't have been there, so I don't need to know his name, as far as I'm concerned. mm, Why was he there? So that was a strange thing, right? That is a good question. Yeah, Billie why Jean is, King. Why is Naomi's agent moderating Let's the say discussion? that again. We have yeah. Billie Jean King. <laughs> we have Naomi Osaka. We have Nick Kyrgios, Marty Fish, and then this guy. Yeah. 
I think it was kind of like LeBron's barbershop situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it was yeah. supposed to be kind of this casual discussion between players about mental health. And obviously both Nick and Naomi have put this issue to the forefront. Now having Billie Jean King there, um, it was a, a very interesting generational dynamic because it's not like Billie is just some boomer, right? Yeah. Like in her day, she was a revolutionary. But what adds a layer to this is that in her day, she needed and she exploited the media in a very specific way. When she and the original nine were building the WTA, not only did they need the media to promote the tour, she, more than possibly anyone in tennis history, knew how to use them to her advantage, right? Like she's she's a personality that tennis has never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so we saw a couple of situations where Billy was not having it. The level at which that well, discourse was operating. That's the other thing about Billy, is that mm. she may be damn near 80 years old, but she has not changed, right? She loves young people. She wants to hear from them, but her opinion will be known. Is there any good that comes out of a losing press conference? This is a question posed by Stu, Naomi's agent. And if you cannot see, I mean, this is not really a journalistic setting. You know, it's... No. It's so... Right. But at the same time, there is a conflict of interest here. Because Naomi has just gone through two to three months of wild public discussion about her, her mental health, with specific relation to her attending press conferences. Mm-hmm. And so there's an agenda here. Well, and her agent's job is to advocate for yes. her, right? Is to manage her, I mean, her public image mm-hmm. and also manage her privately. You know? is, was her attending this little function contingent on him being there and being able to oversee it? Because it's one thing you expect the agent to be there lurking in the background. You know, Jill in the background, like, like... <sighs> Tell yes. him to cut it. Oh, because, you know, I mean, Serena did an interview after that famous U.S. Open final that you know that Jill was a part of and they cut certain questions. Serena wouldn't address certain questions. So agents are always there. That's par for right? the course. But to be moderate. But to be on camera. I mean, maybe it was more transparent that way. To to be fair. Okay. 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 <laughs> I'm just saying there is a lot of layers to this when this is happening, right? Yeah. It's hard to talk about this because I, you know, you can't really talk about somebody's mental health because you have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. with them internally, right? So I certainly have no intention of discrediting or doubting what Naomi, Nick, Marty, or anyone is going through. At the same time, I I wished that they had articulated themselves better. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I mean, I realize that's a privileged position, but Billie Jean King sort of honed in on a few things like like when they say that the media is different now telling billy jean king that the media is different now because it's too negative come again yeah the media is different now right you have social media yeah. you have it's more intimate you have people coming at you on your instagram telling you to die and you know nick and naomi yeah. have the racism aspect that billy yeah. didn't but at the same time you got to read some of your history mm-hmm. because billy jean king was called anything you can think of when she was outed violently, right? Like, let's talk about symbolic violence here. She didn't come out. She was outed. She was canceled. With the survival 
of the tour that she fought so hard to build jeopardized because of it. Mm -hmm. The tour was in trouble, imperiled because of this symbolic act of violence. And none other than the likes of Chrissy Everett had to write public op-eds to try and squash that fire. Right. And you think that was popular in 1981 for America's Sweetheart to do that? Mm -hmm. So, like, we can't just be talking out our asses without understanding our history, right? Yeah. Naomi and Nick's truths are valid, but by presenting it like that, you're negating Billy's truth and also the truth on which the tour is built that you now benefit from. Like 500 times more than Billy ever did in her day, right? (laughs) Right. This is obviously very complex. Like, now Billie Jean King is a senior. She occupies a very vaunted, privileged position in tennis. She is white. She is wealthy. Her experience is different. And, And so I think her, in conversation with young players, and especially young players who aren't white and didn't go through the same experiences as her is so important and is so fascinating. There was also this moment where Stu pivoted to say she missed a slam because of him. Before he could even finish that sentence, Billy was like, no. (laughs) I mean, she practically bit his head off. Yeah, she said, (laughs) you chose not to do that. But she said that choice may have been the right choice for Mm -hmm. you, but you did choose it. Which I think is an important pivot. I don't think Billy necessarily got to the f- the full bottom of that but it's something we've been talking about whereby Naomi needs to assert herself more in with respect to her own agency mm-hmm. right Naomi is a grown woman and I don't want to I don't want to see her agent talking about her in the third person right and Naomi made a choice and it was probably the best choice for her and that's that she's since said that she probably should have handled it differently she didn't expect it to go the way that it did but like that was the choice you made Mm -hmm. in the moment right and being able to reflect on that situation and and make that assessment is very mature Mm -hmm. that she said i i probably i i would have handled it differently if i could go back and clearly she's not in the best mental space right now so Mm -hmm. to be able to assess those things just a few months ago i think is great but did the itf did the grand slams exactly act a fool in that, response, that they most certainly did. Draconian response, like where is the self-assessment on their part? This is where tennis always falls short. Because we point the blame at the players non-stop. We don't hold ATP accountable for their handling of this very situation. We don't hold the ITF and the Grand Slams accountable for their response to Naomi in that situation. And they're allowed to be out here not even a month later, tweeting about players' mental health, organizing events at the next Grand Mm -hmm. Slam, and be able to get public relations benefit from this woman's trauma Mm -hmm. that they helped create and exacerbate. And wait, having the global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion of J.P. Morgan Chase present the winner's check at this year's men's final, do you think that would have happened in 2019? No, it would not have happened. Like these organizations that are faceless a lot of the times act a mess, do whatever they want, protect their bottom lines at all cost. Because that's what that decision was with Naomi at the French Open. That's what that letter was about. We're going to stop all of you who feel like you're too big for your britches from doing something like this. Right. I want all this the other the players. Slope. Yeah. Right? 
all the other players, don't you dare think about doing this as well. Mm. And so Naomi is left to foot the bill. But at the same time, you pay it. You have to pay it. You've put yourself in that position, right? Mm. Well. Well, I mean, that was a little off topic, but it was moved from our midweek US Open episode to this one. Mm -hmm. We normally take kind of a long hiatus after the US Open, and we really don't want to do that this year. Well, we don't even know what the schedule looks like. I know there's American tournaments. Uh, I am so exhausted. I know from Indian tennis. Wells is I know coming at some Indian point. Indian Wells is coming. I really don't know when it is. I have no idea where anything else, <laughs> where anything is, nor have I had the desire to look, right. to be honest. So but what we have decided is that we're going to solicit from you all mailbag questions. It's been a while since we've done a TBS mailbag episode. Email us your questions. Thebodyserve at gmail.com. Tweet, DM, uh, Instagram, whatever. However you can find us, send us your questions. It can we'll, be about tennis. It can be about whether we are recording in a kitchen or a dining room or a mixture of both. <laughs> in Toronto, you don't really have like separate rooms unless you live in Rosedale or where Drake lives or where Layla Fernandez is going to live <laughs> now that she's rich. Well, there's the Queen of Mississauga. There's there's fancy places there, too. <laughs> Yes, girl. Wherever Dennis Shapovalov lives in Thornhill when he's not hiding his money in the Bahamas, Listen. that is not where we live. <laughs> she's going to be the queen of Quebec. Okay, that's who, that's yes, who she's yes. going to be. She she's has gonna, a very adorable French-Canadian accent. She's going to have the city drive by and clean up Jeannie Burchard's front yard. She's going to make... Oh, my... Wow. <laughs> wow. Do you remember that whole, like, <laughs> genie's destitute mansion in oh Westmount? Like, it was the subject of a lawsuit or something. Oh, my, oh God. my God. That was messy. <laughs> it was. Anyway, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We have come to the end of our sixth Grand Slam season. Seventh. Seventh. Seven. I just had to count on my hands. Seven Grand Slam seasons. We started with the first leg of Serena's potential Grand Slam. In mm -hmm. I sold us short. Yeah. Seven. Mm -hmm. We've done 28 slams. Mm -hmm. and You're so um, good at math. <laughs> All right. This, this mm -hmm. needs to end. Thank you for listening. Till next time. <laughs>